Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the world of wine, the different grape varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. In the next two episodes, we're going to focus on New Zealand, and of all the major wine-producing countries in the world, New Zealand is the youngest. In fact, when I visited New Zealand, I landed at Auckland Airport and was greeted with a sign by former Prime Minister of New Zealand saying, Welcome to New Zealand, the world's youngest country. And I thought that's quite a definitive statement. How do you prove that? And I wanted to investigate it while I was in New Zealand. And while there, I discovered there's actually a great deal of truth to this claim. New Zealand was not populated by humans until the 1200s, only about 800 years ago. And it was um, settled by the Maoris. And these are part of a Polynesian migratory uh, culture. And so the Polynesians, over the course of 3,000 years, migrated from island to island in the Pacific Ocean, going as far as Hawaii and then down to New Zealand as well. And New Zealand is the last place that any of these tribes uh, landed in. And of extra significance is the fact that the Maoris are a maritime tribe, and so they never actually um, farmed the land. And so they only um, hunted and fought and travelled by sea. And so New Zealand's soils have been untouched until about the last 200 years when European settlers have begun farming. So it really is a very young country in that, in every sense, in terms of um, population and farming as well. And that has a significant effect on New Zealand, because this is a very young, kind of upfront wine culture that um, isn't burdened by the past and is always looking to do new things. And its wine culture is extremely young indeed. The vines were first planted in New Zealand by our friend James Busby, who was the man who brought Shiraz to Australia. In the late 1830s, he was sent to New Zealand as a diplomat to, nego- to help negotiate a treaty between the British and the Maoris. And that was signed in um, 1841, and he planted vines in his back garden. However, that treaty was extremely contentious. Basically, the British cheated the Maoris, and the Maoris thought they were signing a very di- different document. The British were much more ruthless in negotiating treaties then than they are now. And uh, the Maoris um, started a, a war which lasted about 40 years, and James Busby's vines were actually uh, destroyed by, um, by the Maoris in 1845. And James Busby and wine never really got together again after that. And so when um, plantings of vines were very um, sporadic, there was no real wine culture in New Zealand. It's much more about beer, and beer still dominates today. It's much more a beer-drinking country than a wine-drinking country. A lot of the vines which were planted in New Zealand were hybrids, uh, within the belief that it was actually too cool in New Zealand to be able to plant Vitis vinifera and make quality wine. And also uh, very conservative approaches to alcohol also held back uh, wine culture. Uh, Prohibition was actually voted in in New Zealand. The soldiers returning from the First World War uh, turned that over. But certainly wine and food were not an integral part of New Zealand's culture. And after the Second World War, very protectionist um, policies were introduced to try and protect the New Zealand wine industry, which was pretty low quality from um, foreign wine coming into the country, which meant that New Zealanders weren't exposed to high quality wine from elsewhere. But gradually, the culture changed. In the 1960s, um, Germans came over and advised winemakers and growers to plant Muller Thurgau, believing that it was suitable for New Zealand's cooler climate. And this is when Muller Thurgau was very much in vogue in Germany as an easy to grow, uh, adaptable variety. But the big moment came in 1968 when Sauvignon Blanc was first planted, and it was planted just north of Auckland. And then in 1973, the big New Zealand producer called Montana, which is now called Brancott Estate, planted 
Sauvignon Blanc in Marlborough. And this was the first plantings of any grape variety in Marlborough, which is on the tip of the South Island. So there are two big islands in New Zealand, North Island and South Island. Not very imaginatively named, but very easy to remember. And these weren't just the first plantings in Marlborough, the first plantings of any vines on the South Island at all. And people thought Montana were crazy, that it was way too cool on the South Island to plant grapes and grow them and make wine, but they did it anyway. We fast forward to the 1980s and a group of New Zealand winemakers were travelling around Australia and they went to Western Australia to Margaret River, another very isolated and very young region, and they tasted the wines of a winemaker called Dave Honan and they liked them and they said well we've got some wines in our car do you want to taste them so he said sure and he tried them and he was absolutely amazed by the wines which were Sauvignon Blanc from Marlborough he had never tasted anything like that before so aromatic so pungent so expressive and it amazed him further that New Zealand was even producing any quality wine at all no one outside of New Zealand knew what was going on so the next year he went to New Zealand to Marlborough bought some grapes and made Sauvignon Blanc at a custom crush facility, bottled the wine and brought it back to Australia and sold it in restaurants with very limited availability and made very much. And the wine immediately sold out and became a sensation. And that wine was called Cloudy Bay. And all of a sudden New Zealand wine was on the map. And it had taken Australian, which and New Zealand of course has a strong rivalry with Australia, but it took an Australian, it took an outsider to realise the quality of New Zealand's wines, which was very new and was only just emerging, and then taking them abroad to promote them. And all of a sudden, New Zealand's Sauvignon Blanc was a thing. He sold Cloudy Bay in 1990 to Verve Clicquot, and uh, now it's part of the uh, Moet Hennessy Empire. Still a very coveted wine, even though it's producing huge volumes. Um, Moet Hennessy kind of trickle it out onto the market to make it seem more limited than it actually is. But through Cloudy Bay, uh, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc and Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc in particular have become a thing. It's a very distinctive style and as soon as you say Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc you, everyone knows exactly what that style is. Really pungent, aromatic, herbaceous, grassy, asparagus aromas, um, very much in your face. Uh, it's one of the styles of wine that you walk into a room and you know someone is drinking it because it's just so pungent. And it's almost become a bit of a caricature of itself. That, um, that is just so in your face and there's no subtlety. It is a great way to introduce people to wine who don't really know much about wine because it's so um, aromatic and it gives you an idea that yes, these are the aromas that you get in wine, we're not just making them up. But New Zealand winemakers do want to get away from that caricature and so made different styles of Sauvignon Blanc are being made um, in Marlborough and elsewhere. Um, a good example of this is Grey Wacky, named after a, a soil, and um, this is made by Kevin Rudd, who's a former winemaker at Cloudy Bay, and he makes a wild fermented Sauvignon Blanc, which is very different from the New Zealand style. It's still quite pungent and aromatic. It's made using malolactic fermentation and also using oak, and so it's a lot richer and creamier and more buttery than Sauvignon Blanc usually is. It's, it's drawing on the New Zealand style while making it something quite different and more complex. And quite a few winemakers are experimenting in this way to build on the, the reputation and quality of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, but to do something different so it just doesn't become a repeat of itself. And the quality of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc is generally very high, and that's true of all New Zealand wine. In fact, in the UK, the most expensive bottle of wine on average is New Zealand wine. 
and that's more, more expensive on average than French wine, for instance. And that's because New Zealand just doesn't have the physical space to produce bulk wine or to produce high volume wine. Something like Australia, which has massive areas, California, France, even Chile, South Africa, it's very difficult to produce that uh, high volume wine. So everything has to be focused on quality. And moreover, New Zealand is a small country with a small population. And as I mentioned, wine drinking isn't a central part of New Zealand's uh, drinking culture. And so New Zealand, the amount of wine it does make, it has to rely on exports. They make too much wine for their domestic market to drink. And so if you're relying on exports, you have to really rely on quality to justify other countries buying your wine. So the success story of Sauvignon Blanc means New Zealand is so strongly associated with that grape but it's been uh, trying to diversify in the styles of Sauvignon Blanc, but also the different grape varieties grown there. And plantings over the last 15 years are absolutely mushroomed in New Zealand. Now, in fact, um, there's really no land left to plant in New Zealand, maybe in very small amounts, but there's no room for expansion. So any expansion in New Zealand has to be do with style rather than um, different plantings of different grape varieties. And also New Zealand has very conservative laws on um, bringing plant matter into the country. So it's actually very difficult to uh, import new grape varieties and it's very expensive as well. So New Zealand's kind of a state where it's established itself. Where does it go next in terms of quality and style? But 15 years ago, there's lots of new plantings and so New Zealand growers had to decide what to plant. And they focused, as an alternative to Sauvignon Blanc, they focused on Pinot Gris, rather like they have done in Oregon, which is an odd decision. I don't think Pinot Gris is a particularly exciting grape. Pinot Gris wine in New Zealand is, is good, but I don't never find it that exciting. But there's a lot, lot of new plantings over the last 15 years of Pinot Gris. The style of wine is that more rich Alsace style of Pinot Gris rather than Pinot Grigio, uh, so it's picked a little bit later. Uh, the acidity is going to be medium, medium plus, not that high. And it's also going to have a bit of a tannic quality because Pinot Gris does have a skin color. And to offset that tannic quality, you don't have the necessary acidity, so there's usually a little bit of sweetness to uh, Pinot Gris in New Zealand, as you would find in Alsace, with about 6 grams per litre of residual sugar, just to balance that tannic texture. And Pinot Gris is planted um, all over New Zealand. A lot of producers make it, but still nowhere near the plantings of Sauvignon Blanc. So just to give you an idea, Sauvignon Blanc is around 25,000 hectares of plantings, Pinot Gris is around 2,000. But one grape variety which hasn't expanded over the last 15 years is Chardonnay, and there's about 3,500 hectares of plantings, still more than Pinot Gris, but that's the same number of plantings of Chardonnay that there were 15 years ago. So whereas Sauvignon Blanc is about five times more plantings over the last 15 years, Chardonnay has stayed static, and that's because when New Zealand really expanded in the early 2000s, the ABC movement was at its height, anything but Chardonnay. So New Zealand producers didn't think Chardonnay had a particularly exciting future, so they didn't expand the plantings. And this is a great shame because Chardonnay in New Zealand is absolutely superb, because New Zealand has this moderate climate where the, the wines retain their freshness and high acidity, but it's still got the warmth to have a richness to the wines and a body and depth to them, so there's a really great balance to the Chardonnays. And I think more than any other grape variety in New Zealand, Chardonnay does reflect the different regionality of New Zealand's areas. And so in north of Auckland, 
on the North Island. We have a richness, but a freshness to the wines. Hawke's Bay is a lot richer and fuller, whereas Central Otago really has that high acidity and great balance to the wines. So it may seem strange to urge more planters of Chardonnay, it's such a ubiquitous grape, but I think do think New Zealand winemakers missed an opportunity um, in not planting more Chardonnay because it's going to be very difficult for them to expand now. But the Chardonnay that is made in New Zealand is very good, so we do have that. Um, another grape variety which isn't planted too much is Riesling, about a thousand hectares. And this is planted in, mainly in the South Island, Marlborough, also Central Otago. And this can be made in a variety of styles from dry to sweet. I think the best ones are medium dry because the acidity is, is really high with New Zealand's moderate climate, especially when you go into central Otago where it becomes cool and you really do have that racy acidity that Riesling is so famous for and the sugar just gives some body made in that uh, Spätlaser style. So that can be really a good quality. And then there's also a bit of Gewürztraminer planted as well, uh, only about 300 hectares. And this is going to be very typical of the grape variety. And then Muller Thurgau, which was widely planted back in the 60s, there's only 75 hectares left, so um, not very important anymore, which is a good thing. And then looking at the black grape varieties, Pinot Noir is by far the most important, with 5,000 hectares planted, and this has been on the rise like the other grape varieties, and the Pinot Noir can certainly be extremely high quality. The two areas where it excels are Martinborough, which is on the tip of the North Island, and Central Otago, on the bottom of the South Island, and we'll look at the regions in the next episode in more detail. Pinot Noir can be quite distinctive from New Zealand, um, in particular because New Zealand is quite exposed by the ozone layer, it's very weak above New Zealand, and so the sun is very strong and there's more UV rays uh, beaming down on the country, and the Pinot Noir grapes do have thicker skins to protect themselves from the, those UV rays, which produces wines with a slightly deeper colour and more of a tannic structure. But those wines are going to be very um, very clean, fruity and pure. That's what New Zealand winemakers are going for in all their wines. It's about the purity of the fruit. And they're not afraid. They're not afraid to um, manipulate in the winery either, but uh, they're really going for cleanliness. So anything like Brett is, is a bad word in New Zealand. It's not something they appreciate in wine. Whereas in France, it can be seen as part of the wine's character and quality. And of course, New Zealand um, wines are mainly bottled in a screw cap. It's around 70%. And this is quite a transformation. In 2001, just 1% of New Zealand wine was bottled in a screw cap. But by 2004, that had changed to 70%, and that's remained consistent um, ever since. And that's really going for the making sure the wine is always clean and consistent and not allowing any bottle variation, let alone TCA. And this is something very important to New Zealand winemakers. Also planted is Merlot, and especially in Hawke's Bay, which is the warmest area of New Zealand and so Merlot can get ripe there. Cabernet Sauvignon is also planted there, but it's trickier to get it ripe. It's got a very similar climate to Bordeaux, where you're getting Merlot ripe, no problem, but Cabernet Sauvignon is more of a struggle. So the Bordeaux blends there are usually Merlot-based, and there's also Syrah uh, planted there as well, which can be very good quality too. And to summarise those wines, it's kind of a summary of New Zealand in general. They're going to be clean and fruity, but they're not going to be as fruity as Australia, for sure, or California, um, but they're going to have more fruit than Bordeaux or the Northern Rome, and they're also going to be a lot cleaner as well. And so you can see New Zealand, even though it's the youngest of all the New World countries, as a cross between Europe and the rest of the world in terms of climate as well as winemaking style. So in the next episode, we'll look at the different regions of New Zealand. Thank you for listening. This is Matthew, and this has been Matthew's World of Wine and Drink. Thank you.